and we've been watching this for for three years or so move from the kind of bottom of the internet as it were on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture and with particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode four, How Does It Feel? And who are we? I'm Alan Finlayson. I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia. I'm Rob Topinka. I teach and research media and cultural studies at Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher. I research digital culture at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we doing in this episode? We're thinking about the role of feelings and emotions in online political discourse. Emotions have always been central to politics, however much we might like to think or believe that there is a possibility for emotion-free, just rational, straightforward debate. There's always emotions involved in what we're debating and talking about because it matters to us. So is politics especially emotional today? Well, no. On one level, it isn't. But there are some things about the way we live today that do make us quite emotional about the kinds of things we might discuss and debate in relation to politics. Modern life is hard. Social roles are in flux. There's no clarity as to where we belong in society. We can feel confused and lost and not probably recognised by people around us. The way we do politics and economics today, so-called neoliberalism, often tells us that we just have ourselves to rely on. We can't expect others to give us a helping hand when we need it. We have to make sure that we're fit and able to cope and compete in the economy and in the job market, studying hard at school, getting the qualifications, getting the degrees, getting on and on and on and on and on and on, and never really having time to stop and relax and be ourselves. We're always having to be resilient, working out for the next opportunity, avoiding the next threat. Political economic disruption more broadly, financial crashes, uncertainties as to whether our savings will hold their values, all sorts of political upheaval and change have created an environment rife with anxiety, uncertainty and resentment. We're not sure what our jobs are going to be. We're not sure if we can keep our jobs. Will our kids be able to afford a house? Will I be able to afford a house? What does globalisation mean for my country, my nation and so forth? Now pandemics, climate catastrophes and so forth. So in all of that, chaos and confusion, a lot of online political celebrities promise to help you not just understand things better, but to feel better and to know who to blame. Yeah, and digital platforms are really emotion engines, right? They allow feelings to circulate. They make them resonate. They can play on our feelings of uncertainty, our desire for connection, our uh, lack of connection that we feel in our everyday lives, our desire for stimulation, our appetite for controversy, uh, all the while with algorithms, foregrounding, whatever's most engaging, whatever content uh, gets the most clicks, likes, shares, retweets, and so on. And one result of that is a lot of political argument is about 
having the the right feelings, the correct emotions, the right take, uh, and not having the wrong take, not getting dunked on for having a bad take on some issue. Uh, it's also about accusing the other side of either being too emotional or not emotional enough. You know, why are you so out- outraged about this when that's happening? That sort of uh, question about whether your feelings are in the right place or not. So to give some examples here, we might think of a figure like the conservative pundit and podcaster Ben Shapiro, who likes to present his opponents as deluded and irrational. But here's the biggest problem with the left's argument. They're based on feelings, not facts. In a similar vein, we might think of all the YouTube videos with titles like Jordan Peterson calmly dismantles feminism in front of two feminists. So here, um, painting this controversy-mongering psychology professor as a kind of cool, rational foil to these um, irrational liberals. Uh, Or we might think of videos that riff on the idea of progressives as hysterical snowflakes by promising to show viewers the greatest leftist tears of all time. (laughs) It's still funny. It's still funny. But it's not always a matter of coolly rational right-wingers and over-emotional leftists. In other cases, reactionary figures project righteous ire or deploy irreverent humour to make leftists look robotic or emotionless. Uh, So here we might think of the recently deplatformed conspiracy theorist and Infowars host Alex Jones and the way he talks about figures like Hillary Clinton. She is a demon damned to hell! Or we might think of the irreverent humour of Donald Trump and the way he manages to paint his opponents as uptight and humourless. So a lot of online and offline political debate is about painting your opponents as being driven by their feelings and not rational but at the same time as being incapable of feeling, having no sympathy with and not understanding the rest of us, the normal people. And at the same time, online communication is all about stirring up our feelings, whether that's outrage, anger, fear or resentment. So with all that in mind, we asked Sophie to go and ask some students how they feel online. Often nowadays, politics is primarily about going for people's emotions. Like, it's about getting them to feel something so that they'll have a strong opinion on it. Like, when you go for something that is, it hits someone at the heart, they're going to be more passionate about it and naturally they're going to want to spread it more. Whereas if they're, like, if it's something that's just purely factually based, often people kind of, you know, are almost bored by it sometimes. It's very easy to uh, quickly whip people up into a frenzy with a more emotive language than it is to, you know, explain to them the entire issue. Politics online being conflicting or emotive i think again it depends on the user and what they allow themselves to see and what they allow themselves to engage with because i think as individuals we can find a lot of things emotive but what might be triggering for one person could not be for another i think there being the sort of like prevalence of different ideas online gives you a lot of material to find emotional or to find conflicting or to find challenging or perhaps antagonistic even but it depends on the on the user and what they see and what they they want to engage with like i'm the most one of the most sensitive people i've ever met especially when you see videos of stuff that's actually like happening like palestine for example at the moment you see there's this one video going around of this like 10 year old girl who articulates really well you know how she's feeling and the uh, experience that her family are going through so i think when it's a personal experience like that 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 kind of frames a political situation it definitely does a lot of feelings are created there for sure i am an extremely emotional person and i definitely encounter things that make me 
angry all the time online and I've kind of got to the point now where if it makes me really angry I don't engage with it because I know that it's going to I'm going to get too emotional and it would be worth it to sort of have a conversation over I think I see content that and I think oh gosh why is that why is that happening and a lot of times I sit there and I think 2021 and like we're having these sort of political debates. It makes me want to engage in the conversation more when I see something that I don't think is correct. So I think those comments that the students make, they're really interesting and they resonate with some of my experiences online. But I think we should hesitate to say that politics today is more emotional than politics in the past. I don't know how we would even measure that or prove that. And I don't think it's the case. The history of politics is full of people taking part in riots and conflicts of all kinds, being in demonstrations or just cheering and applauding powerful political speakers in public meetings. But what's really different about the experience that we have now, and I think our students are talking about, is that you're having all that online. You're on your own. You're not surrounded by a bunch of other people who are telling or shaping your feelings. You're you're perhaps you know isolated. You might not be near anyone you know or like. That's going to be a very different way in which you encounter the emotional aspects of politics, I think. Yeah, there's a way we talk about emotions online in terms of things like, you know, groupthink or hive minds and this idea that people are always kind of piling on and swarming and, and sort of uh, uh, all thinking the same thing at once. And that does happen, but from what these students are saying, that almost sounds like that's the exception. And, and the kind of day-to-day experience of going online is feeling bombarded from all sides by all sorts of different emotions different as one student said you know all this content is is kind of uh, soliciting my emotions all the time it's kind of an overwhelming uh, personal you know experience to be bombarded by these different emotions all at once yeah and I think an important part of that is it might also be unexpected right if I go to a political meeting in which I know people are going to talk about something powerful or frightening or shocking I'm ready for it I went expecting that whereas I might be online scrolling through my feed from you know what's happening in the sport what the weather is and then suddenly I get someone being aggressive or offensive or I get like one of, the, one of them was talking a clip from a news show pulled out of something really distressing and really upsetting that I just wasn't ready for. And even something as simple as autoplay means, right, that as you're scrolling through your feed, it just it's coming at you, whether you even clicked on it or not, just being on the platform itself, the content is, is coming. You know, you, unless you change your settings, things are going to play for you and you're going to have to f- respond emotionally on some level. Right, and that kind of emotive content can be really spreadable and really shareable, which might, lead, might be because you passionately agree with it or it elicits your pity or sympathy, but it might also be something you hate share because you're outraged or incredulous about it. And then as some students were saying, there's also a risk that you kind of burn out, become jaded or overwhelmed and disengage from politics, which is a, a tactic that I think some political groups use. Yeah, because all of this provides an opportunity for people with political strategies, political goals to kind of play on the emotions, appeal to the emotions and get people on their side. So this is something we talked about in previous episodes with the alt-right and their transgressive rhetoric. Transgression elicits a response, right? You're either for it or against it. You want to police it or you want to celebrate it. The same thing with their ironic humor. Either you laugh at it or you're offended by it. Either way, the emotional response separates us from them. And in this sense, we could see a lot of reactionary figures online as engaging in classic trolling behavior. Um, They're aiming to make their targets lose it, to manipulate them into revealing themselves to be oversensitive. Uh, For Whitney Phillips, who teaches political communication and media literacy at Syracuse, using the term trolling does risk minimising the harm being done, but also alerts us to the continuities between internet subcultures and the tactics used by political figures online today. Yeah, I mean, over so over the years, 
trolling started out as this deeply problematic subcultural practice, but one that could index playfulness as well as really terrible behaviors. But as trolling subculture was hollowed out and filled in with actual white supremacists, avowed white supremacists, the idea of using that same word that had these connotations still of some degree of playfulness, some element that this was just trolling on just the internet, it really allowed you to cordon somebody's beliefs from their behavior, you know, and, and, and set itself up, set people up to say, well, I was just trolling. I don't have to be held accountable for what I'm saying because I'm doing this fun and funny thing on the internet. And maybe that's okay or justifiable under some circumstances if you're talking about a harmless prank you're playing on your cousin on Facebook or something. But if you're using that term to describe violent, sustained, identity-based harassment steeped in a white supremacist or even explicitly neo-Nazi worldview, what does what do we get by allowing playfulness to be part of that discourse. So one of the things I think we need to think about is how the affordances, we've used that word before, how the affordances of digital technologies and platforms maybe work in ways that keep the emotional temperature high. Right, and, and this might seem like a slightly counterintuitive idea in a sense. Um, people used to think of cyberspace, of the internet, as this disembodied space. We were going to ride the information superhighway all the way to enlightenment. Um, in fact, the internet of today looks and feels quite different to that. The oversupply of information can make it hard to decide between competing claims. And as a result, people are drawn to voices and to viewpoints and to ideologies that feel compelling on a visceral level. And this problem is compounded by search engines, which will always lead the searcher somewhere, even if they're serving up misinformation, conspiracies or hate speech. So Hugo Liao, a researcher at the Mindaroo Centre for Technology and Democracy in Cambridge, argues that in a web where there's an infinite range of content to choose from, um, people tend to click on content that, in his own words, pokes us in our amygdala, uh, triggering what he calls mechanisms of psychological arousal. It has been demonstrated that actually, and we don't need to demonstrate that scientifically, almost, we know this, Lol cats and puppies work as well. They are viral, it's easy, but it's just that these uh, seem to be more effective for these purposes. So, for example, anti-vax narratives always, like, like Pizzagate actually, or like QAnon, involve children. That's the first psychological arousal there. Uh, then you have usually uh, very strong messages related to life and death. There's another one. So we could frame this as, as Hugo does in terms of uh, psychology and neurobiology, dopamine receptors and psychological profiles. Um, but however we want to frame it, there's little doubt that content that's cute or scary or funny or sexy or outrageous is likely to cut through the noise online. Yeah, and I, I think it's also just about feeling connected to what's going on in the world around you. Digital technologies allow you to kind of form communities with people maybe thousands of miles away, but who perhaps share with you grievances or anxieties or things that worry or frighten you. But in some cases, that can develop into more elaborate kind of collective fantasies of vindication and vengeance. 
One example of this is the uh, subreddit, a community on Reddit called R the Donald, which was a space for celebrating who they called their God Emperor Donald Trump, uh, and the idea was. We celebrate God Emperor Trump here, and we f attack our enemies, the left and the mainstream media, who are seen as sort of co-conspirators trying to take down the God Emperor. So it's this place where a way of feeling about the world is rehearsed and, and reinforced. Annie Kelly, a researcher and podcaster specializing in the study of online anti-feminism, gave us another example of this. One thing that I always think of is that it was like a really common, really common fantasy to read on anti-feminist sites about this kind of day of reckoning that would essentially happen with all of womankind, where, you know, they would kind of fantasize about this day where kind of men just quit, uh, walked away because they were, you know, being so kind of disrespected by feminism, by women, they were being so ill-treated that they just kind of gave up on civilization, gave up on society. And that this would kind of, you know, be a, a, a day where women who, you know, had mistreated men so poorly, had, you know, thought they were so independent and so kind of, you know, feminists would, you know, realise their mistake um, or naturally be horrified and, uh, you know, really upset. And it's, it sort of sounds so silly, but it's a fantasy, you know. It's sort of meant to sound a bit sort of silly. And one thing that I noticed, actually, I think particularly in the run-up to 2016, was how this fantasy almost evolved and would suddenly become more about a kind of impending clash of civilizations or an impending... I don't think many of them used the word race war, but it was quite clearly what they were talking about, where women would need the, you know, the kind of good civilized men to protect against. And, you know, it would sometimes be Muslim men, it would sometimes be black men, uh, but, you know, the kind of uh, savage other essentially. And then women would kind of have the same sort of realisation. They'd realise, you know, um, their own frailty, their own weakness, um, how much they needed men, how poorly they treated men. So similar sorts of fantasies uh, animate uh, racist discourse on Twitter. And this is something Bharat Ganesh, who is a uh, researcher of communication at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, has studied. And he looked at how emotional fantasies of white victimhood are created and circulated primarily through right-wing online accounts that are compiling instances of what they see as anti-white racism and circulating that among their audiences and followers uh, to create uh, networked mobs that target particular uh, uh, people who they see as uh, their enemies. Barath told us more about this. So there's a lot of this kind of documentation going on of these kinds of uh, what they consider anti-white behavior, right? And then what happens is that sort of sentiment of anti-whiteness anti then becomes something that people start kind of getting together to, to start trolling somebody on. In, a, in another instance, um, there's the, uh, I'm sure most people who are listening in will be familiar with Paul Joseph Watson, who's uh, formerly associated with in InfoWars, kind of uh, far-right uh, YouTube pundit. So you might not, in fact, be familiar with Paul Joseph Watson, but he is a really good example of the kind of political entrepreneur, micro-celebrity that we've been talking about in these podcasts. He's UK-based. He has a very popular YouTube channel with millions of subscribers, hugely popular Twitter account with many many millions of, of followers and his kind of approach is to promote conservative right-wing kinds of politics anti-feminist anti-immigration anti-remainer to do that with a kind of mixture of sort of moralistic kind of ire but also ironic transgressive mockery one of the most popular tweets in my data set came from paul joseph watson and in it what he did was he tweeted about singer-songwriter uh, lily allen who, who was speaking on, on kind of an issue about child sexual abuse 
on, on TV, I think on Channel 4 or something like that. And they they were looking at kind of uh, victims of uh, of grooming gangs in, in the UK. And of course, we know in the UK, when we're talking about grooming gangs, the pro- predominant framing is that these are uh, primarily South Asian men that are involved in this, right? Uh, whether that's an accurate framing or not is a, another question. But it's it's picking up on that particular issue. And what Lily Allen says is that the girls who were sexually abused would probably have been uh, abused at some other point in their lives. And what Lily Allen is obviously trying to say is that you know, sexual harassment, sexual abuse is something that's endemic in society and that, that it affects most women. Right. Or affects a a, a really huge proportion of women. And of course, that gets twisted. Right. That gets twisted as this kind of like anti-white kind of lunatic statement. And so Paul Joseph Watson basically says something to the effect of, you know, Lily Allen is mad. Look at what these immigrants are, are doing and look at how these leftists are trying to bury this. Right. And then what happens is like a bunch of the trolls who follow Paul Joseph Watson then start trolling Lily Allen. Right. And it's that you know, engagement in this kind of like collective action of sort of attacking that person, in this case, Lily Allen, that sort of gives you an example of what that kind of transgression or that practice of animosity can look like. So in this example Barath's giving us is what's happening is the medium is allowing this kind of provocation and solicitation of really strong feelings that are then amplified and then organized and directed at a, at a particular target. And I think that's really important, politically and ideologically too. The the heat of that emotion really helps to burn definitions, names into consciousness, leaving people with a kind of intense but distorted sense of what other people's political positions uh, look like. But that also has an economic aspect. It's a way to generate attention, a way to generate followers. You take content, like Leland's tweet, out of context put it in your own context, and that way you mobilise fan bases with these strong parasocial attachments to you, to charismatic individuals like Paul Joseph Watson, so they want to like, subscribe, give you money on Patreon, and join in, be part of the community promoting and pushing your politics and fighting back against someone like Lily Allen. And we have to think about the kinds of content that these frenzies are whipped up around. Often they're in response to people making short Twitter posts or creating videos in response to events that are still unfolding in front of a potential audience of billions. In those kinds of situations, it's easy to misjudge tone. It's easy to get facts wrong uh, and then to elicit this kind of passionate response. Um, As we heard last time, context collapse, the ability of something to drift out of its original context of perception and to be picked up and put somewhere else, um, means that something posted in a particular circumstance for a particular audience can be easily recontextualized and repackaged uh, in a way that is calculated to whip those who encounter it into this kind of frenzy. Yeah, and this is how cancel culture works, right? Which is often a term the right uses to accuse the left of doing, but the right has actually perfected the art of taking something out of context, often by saying, you know, maybe a tweet that was seven years old gets dug up and reposted, and then you might as well have said that today. So there's a question, I think, about how to, how to deal with, with all of this. You know, there's going to be emotion in politics, but we also need some way to kind of make sense of what's really going on and be able to make proper kinds of political judgments. The tricky thing, though, with you know the intensity of the emotion and with the issue of context collapse means that approaches that hinge on fact-checking or debunking don't always acknowledge the emotional appeal of reactionary content. And they also tend to assume that politics can be wholly rational and wholly lo- logical. 
Becca Lewis, a PhD researcher at Stanford who we've heard from in previous episodes, has written a lot about right-wing influencers, and she made a really interesting point about the limits of fact-checking. Like, I think that there's actually a, a lot of interesting and necessary critique of kind of fact-checking as a response to disinformation right now. And, you know, I think a lot of scholars who can speak more eloquently than me on the topic, you know, will talk about how, you know, actually what is considered truth and facts has always been linked to who's in power and has always been actually more contested than we like to think of it. The aspect that I've looked at specifically in my research is that the YouTubers that I looked at often are radicalizing people with a few different tactics, but one of them involves personal storytelling. And personal storytelling can't be fact-checked in the way that kind of the traditional item of fake news can be. It's someone sharing their own stories, their own experiences. In some ways, it's, it's you know, speaking their truths, right? And so you can't have a, a website like Snopes or another fact-checker go in and say, actually, their, their own personal experiences about this are wrong, right? It's their own personal experiences. Barath Ganesh makes a similar point with regard to the way that platforms like Facebook deal with racist and white supremacist content. He feels like the current approach supposes you can reason people out of their deeply held prejudices. And for him, it's just not that simple. White supremacy then tends to get shunted into being considered hate speech, right? And there, there's a lot of softer mechanisms that are being used. So platforms, I think, are trying to basically deal with the white supremacy problem instead of deplatforming and taking down content, they're trying to use a sort of counter-propaganda method, right? Which is the idea that instead of taking down content, uh, let's feed someone who's got white supremacist sympathies, um, let's feed them with content that might debunk some of their ideas. Or maybe let's feed them with content that leads them to a website uh, that provides de-radicalization services. So again, you've got a really serious kind of double standard in the way in which this works. And I think what we're seeing more and more is this idea that like we can solve this problem by sort of using strategic communication and counter propaganda as a way of, uh, of trying to change people's minds, right? And we know like basically from the broader disinformation literature, both kind of quantitative and qualitative, that just trying to debunk people's ideas doesn't really work, especially when it comes to these kinds of deeply held sort of commitments to, to racial superiority. So I think if we're to understand more fully the spread of these kinds of reactionary ideas, we also have to recognize something we haven't probably talked about yet, which is that for people participating in these kinds of online subcultures, it feels really good. We've already talked about the kind of therapy dimension here, how it gives people some way to understand the world so they have some sense of power and control over it. But I think we can add more to our understanding here. So cultural theorists and analysts use the term libidinal economy, which sounds weird, but bear with me as we do a little bit of cultural theory. So libido just refers to our drives to seek pleasure, including the kind of pleasure of building up uh, and releasing tensions. And the word economy just means to draw attention to how that energy gets organised and distributed uh, in a society. So in uh, remote 1970s Scottish islands, they might burn a wicker man to get rid of all their overblown passions and emotions. In other societies, they might watch horror films about people burning each other in wicker men. Maybe we go to a pub on a Friday after work, get a bit raucous, complaining about colleagues and letting off steam. We have big sporting events in occasions. Anyway... Florian Kramer, who specialises in 21st century visual culture at an art college in Rotterdam, he had some really interesting things to say about libidinal economy. 
So all these phenomena, um, uh, alt-right and uh, QAnon, are libidinous uh, economies. I think that is exactly what also is their attraction, that they, they, you know, they give you libidinous uh, value, that there is um, joyfulness in them, pleasure. Yeah? Uh, also, you could say a, a sexual kind of pleasure. It's transgressive. That's the reason why it works. And that is, an old, uh, it's of course, an old countercultural uh, phenomenon. But then if you bring that together with, let's say, a new grand narrative, also with excitement, yeah? discovery. So I think that's such an important point. The internet is fun for people, even when it's this kind of dark political stuff. And we don't always think of politics as being exciting and fun, but online it can be. You can plot your own path. You can make connections. Um, it's exciting in academic work that I do to study something and have it come into view and think that I've improved my understanding about it. The internet kind of gives a version of that experience to everybody all the time, but in a really intense way. But it can also be exciting online for people to mess with other people, to get into fights with them, to wind them up, and to do that in front of an audience that might applaud you for it. So I think we can't underestimate the extent to which digital culture thrives on a certain sadistic impulse, or in my case, a certain kind of masochism. One of the things I do online that I don't quite understand about myself is kind of search out things that irritate and annoy me, bad political arguments, bad rhetoric, because I get a kind of pleasure from being appalled by them and thinking about what much better arguments would look like. I think uh, we all do that, and maybe that's why we're researching this subject. Uh, but also, to, you know, to take this point more seriously as well, you know, Bharath Ganesh argues that white supremacists often frame and experience their activity not just in a negative sense. And we've been focusing primarily on the kind of downsides of, of emotion online, the, the sort of negative emotions, the anger, the resentment, and so on. But there's also a lot of love, pride, pleasure, belonging, purpose, and joy that circulates in these white nationalist communities as well. What I was observing is that, yeah, there was a lot of hate speech and sort of ideas about kind of like the great replacement and all of these kinds of conspiracy theories that we're now all quite familiar with. But the flip side of that was that whenever there was this kind of sense of victimhood, there was also this sense of kind of like reclaiming pride uh, and reclaiming a sense of love. And so I was trying to make sense of that, right? Like, how is it this kind of doubled thing where you've got sort of hate and, and the idea that uh, one is a victim at the same time that you have this sort of concept of, uh, or, or, or you have these feelings of pride and love. In a similar vein, Claire Birchall, who teaches at King's College London and who's published widely on questions of secrecy and conspiracy and transparency in digital culture, uh, stressed to us that participating in conspiracy theories can be on an emotional, visceral level, very seductive and very exciting. Yeah, I mean, being in on the secret is truly beguiling, right? It, it sort of confers these feelings of specialness, of belonging. It confers identity, in fact, right? And, and what's interesting about secrets is that they can do that without having to be true. <laughs> and in fact, we might ascribe more truthfulness to the secret precisely because it's secret. It sort of has more value in that sense. But there's nothing to say that a secret is more true, <laughs> Uh, than anything, any other kind of knowledge or information. And obviously those feelings of specialness and belonging bestowed by receiving a secret is really important to conspiracist groups. Although you don't want to overstate the idea of belonging because it's not as if the QAnon quotes community is this harmonious, you know, unvariated, loving space. I mean, they all disagree with each other and and call each other out all the time. So Jenny Rice has this really great book on the effective qualities of conspiracy theories. And she writes about how 
She talks about effective frissons and how they become forms of evidence in themselves. So instead of addressing the content and offering more regular evidence to sort of dissuade a conspiracy theorist, you have to attend to the material structures that allow certain figurations to become experienced as evidence in the first place. So she's talking about, you know, websites, social media platforms, funding sources. So this immediately takes us to kind of infrastructural questions and political economy. And I think, you know, this is all important if you consider conspiracy theorizing to be a form of false enlightenment, you know, false scales falling from your eyes, you know, the scales from your eye fall from your eyes, but all you see is more scales. Because, you know, if you think that it's taking, that conspiracy theory is taking valuable energy away from legitimate political or revolutionary goals, then you have to understand the affective bonds that people have to conspiracist narratives that have conferred identity and forms of agency upon them. So secrecy and revelation are part of the emotional appeal of reactionary content. But I think it's worth noting that isn't unique to the conspiracists and the right wingers and the reactionaries. Often people who think of themselves and present themselves as rational, liberal, critical subjects also delight in those gestures of revelation too. Exposing the dark forces, manipulating us online, promoting disinformation, the foreign countries that are interfering in our democratic process. And that makes people feel affectively more attached to their own democracy and more committed to their idea that it's democratic and perfect. And so in this episode, it's felt like basically everything's happening all of the time and it's happening to us individually on social media. Can you summarise this for us? Well, I can try and give it a go. Um, And I think, as we've said, passions have always run high in politics. It's always been a notoriously emotive subject. But maybe digital technologies have exacerbated or inflected that in a particular way. Um, And there's a few ways they've done that. Number one, as we've said, they provide these incentives to post controversial opinions and hot takes and to do so maybe before we have a full command of the facts in response to events that are still unfolding. They've also facilitated the formation of these spaces and these communities where people can get together to share their grievances and fantasise about the forms of revenge they want to take on their enemies. They've made it easier to share and to recontextualise content that will get strong reactions to take things out of its original context. Uh, They've also enabled influencers to mobilise these networked mobs who they can target at particular people. Uh, And they've overwhelmed all of us with this glut of information uh, to the point where it sometimes feels simpler to trust our instincts than to really research and think rationally. We need to acknowledge all of the pleasures and incentives that are at work here. Um, In other words, we can't just fantasise about this perfectly rational world where we have a full command of the facts. Uh, And the current situation can't just be addressed through fact-checking and debunking for that reason. Yeah, so I kind of have mixed feelings about all of this, because on the one hand, I think politics should be passionate. A little bit of emotion politics is a good thing, gives it energy, helps bind people together so they can work together to try and bring about changes and help their society become better. But where are those passions directed when when they're stirred up online? It seems to me that part of what happens is the system encourages and intensifies our emotions but just as an end in itself. So as we've seen in this episode, perceived threats to identity can be a reliably emotional issue. We're going to look at identity and talk about how identity works online, and in particular how the right presents appealingly but deceptively simple understandings of identity. On this episode of Reactionary Digital Politics, you have been listening to... I am Whitney Phillips. My name is Uglial. My name's Annie Kelly. My name is Bharat Ganesh. My name is Becca Lewis. My name is Florian Kana. 
My name's Claire Birchall. And thanks also to our students, Gareth, Dom, James, Lisa, Lauren, Max and Luke. You've also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topinka. And me, Alan Finlayson. And me, Sophie Ledkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. Production of the podcast was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University of London. Please like, subscribe, share, review, but only if you liked it.